There was a chart on the email. Did the chart make sense? Yes. Good. Good. The email was about this point right here. That these two things are two very different things. Although they are related, they are very different things. So it's one thing to be a premillennialist, okay? But being a pre-tribulationalist is only one part or one classification of being a premillennialist. Are you with me? So sometimes, you know, these are two big, long theological words. So sometimes when we hear one or the other of these words, we don't necessarily think of the right thing. So when you think about premillennialism, we're talking about the return of Christ in regard to the millennium. Christ will return before the millennium. Okay? Versus when you talk about pre-tribulationalism, now you're talking about the timing of the rapture of the church. Whereas in pre-tribulationalism, Christ will rapture the church before the tribulation period. That's what pre-tribulationalism is. Okay? Or this has other terms, right? We call them pre-tribbers. Right? You cannot be a pre-tribber without being premillennial. But also, I, I suppose you could. In, in theory, you could be. Well, because even an amillennialist believes that there is yet to be a future antichrist, and believes there's going to be a a a, uh, a resurrection, and uh, a bodily return of the Lord, and a bodily catching away of living saints at the time. So one could also, I suppose, hold that position, but amillennialists typically don't even enter into those kinds of arguments. So um, <clears throat> this is also called dispensational <clears throat> premillennialism. This is actually the more proper term for it. Premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism. Because... Dispensationalists are premillennial and and pre-tribulational. Okay? That's what the email was about, if you got the email. If you didn't get the email, you need the email. It's helpful. Would you agree it's helpful? Okay. And the chart. Yeah, the chart. Okay. Okay, look at that. Everybody's already in their chair. Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we praise you and we honor you this day. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy in our Lord Jesus. That, Lord, you have forgiven our sins because of what Christ has done in dying for us and in our place. A sacrifice of his unblemished and perfect life for our blemished and imperfect life. Lord, he was a substitute for us, and we thank you. I pray that you would open our eyes to the majesty of this truth. God, that you would cause us to see and understand of what worth and value is the precious Lamb of God.
and his precious blood, which was poured out for us. Lord, we rejoice in what Christ has therefore done for us in, in giving us forgiveness, appeasing your wrath, turning away your wrath and taking it upon himself so that we don't have to. And that, Lord, through his resurrection, we have the hope of eternal life knowing that death has been conquered and that hell has been conquered and that to all who look to him and trust in him, they may have eternal life and live forever in your presence. And that, Lord, that soon and very soon Jesus is coming to conquer evil once and for all and to put under his feet all his enemies, God. And, Father, we pray that uh, you would fill our hopes each new day, uh, our hearts, with that hope. Help us to look eagerly to the return of Christ and, Lord, to be living a life worthy of him and glorifying him and enjoying him, Lord, in all that we do. Help us to be Christians that please you in every respect that are fruitful and and filled with the fruit of righteousness and god we just pray that you'd strengthen our faith and help us to rise above the darkness of this world and walk in the victory of your kingdom of light god help us to be as shining lights in a dark world to those around us help us to be to rescue them by speaking the truth of the gospel to them, that they might also be saved from death and from hell and from darkness and from sin. Lord, help us to be good ministers of your gospel, we pray. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place today and to look at your word. Help us and give us understanding. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week... We got uh, uh, through First Thessalonians chapter two, verse 16. And last week we, we really focused on verses 14 through 16, where Paul makes some really eye-opening statements about the Jews. And we talked about at length uh, the Jews and their, um, if you will, role in what God is now doing in the plan of redemption. And not only that, but we talked a little bit about the future of the Jews, um, specifically ethnic Jews. You see, it's the religious Jews on whom the wrath of God had finally come. It is the whole nation of ethnic Jews that Jesus is going to save at his coming. And so we need to make that distinction, as I explained last week. There's a distinction between ethnic Jews and religious Jews. It's the religious Jews who have always persecuted the righteous. It is the religious Jews that had run Paul out of Thessalonica and killed the Lord Jesus and had been killing the prophet for some time. Are you with me? And so even if you, if you will, in the age of Judaism, there was a difference between religion and relationship. Just like there is now in the age of Christianity. There are those who say they're Christians 
and there are those who are really Christians. Amen? And uh, if you will, it's the difference between being a true believer and being a mere professor. Right? <clears throat> because a true believer is marked by the marks of saving faith. Amen? Of which these Thessalonians are a great example. As we read about the Thessalonians, we read about a true church of true believers. So much so are they true believers, they will proclaim the name of Christ even if they be persecuted and afflicted and suffering because of it. Amen? And of course, persecution is always a test to see whether or not we'll stand firm in the faith, isn't it? And of course, these Thessalonians are a model for us in that regard. Even as the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy were as well. Amen? And even though they were enduring much suffering and much persecution, they were out about ministering the gospel. And even if they had to give their life, right, which Paul eventually did, for the sake of the gospel, they were willing to open their mouth and speak the truth so that God's people might be saved. Amen? And they're a model for us, family. They are our leaders. We are following them. And just like the Thessalonians, we want to be imitators of those apostles who were imitating the Lord Jesus, who gave himself a sacrifice for us. Amen? And, you know, they killed Jesus because he was preaching the gospel. That's why they killed Jesus. They didn't like his message. It was offensive. It was so offensive, they killed him for it. Amen? God help us to realize and understand, right? So, of course, last week we, we ended by talking at great length about the Jews, who they are. We even talked a bit about modern Judaism. Those comments are mostly recorded on uh, page 29 of your handout. And then just briefly, what the Bible says in Romans 11 about the restoration of Israel. And uh, so that brings us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 and following. And uh, there Paul writes, he says, But we, now he's going to transition again. Okay, now, just kind of giving you a 20,000 foot overview here, right? <laughs> the first chapter, he's commending the church for their great faith. And he's trying to reassure them that they've been chosen of God because of the way that they responded and received the gospel and went out and, and preached and they became imitators of the apostles. And, and in chapter 1, he's really commending the church and, and in commending them, he's seeking to encourage them to continue to persevere and to excel all the more in the faith. Then in verses chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul discusses his ministry to them, how he went about it, how the church was established, the kinds of things that they did in, in disciple-making and in apostolic church establishing. And uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, really is a, a really good overview of what Christian discipleship looks like, practically being carried out all the way to the point of the establishment of a church. Then in chapter 2, verse 13... Paul shifts a little bit and he talks about how 
the Thessalonians received the, the word as it was in truth, the very word of God. And he talked about how powerfully they had been changed because they received the word as it was in truth, the word of God. And I was talking to you about how important this is to Christian life. You, 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 can't, you can't be a Christian and, and in the full sense of the word receive what God has for you if you don't even believe that the words of the Bible are God's very words. Understand? That's why every evangelical Christian body has a statement of faith that makes a very clear and distinct statement about the inerrancy and the infallibility of the word of God. That it, it is without error. Why? Because it's the words that come from God himself. And when God speaks, his word is perfect. It's flawless. It's without error, right? But then not only that, but it's infallible. What do we mean by that? The promises contained within it will not and cannot fail. Why? Because they are divine. They're God's promises. And God sees fit that they're carried out. Amen? And so, not only that, you can understand then, because we believe that about the Bible, that it takes some measure of faith to apprehend those truths and to believe them. Amen? It's a matter of faith whether or not you believe the Bible is the very words of God. It's not just something that you mentally ascend to. It's something that you trust in. (laughs) It's something that you trust in with your mental faculties and your will. And it's something that you uh, hold tightly to. Amen? And of course, when we consider and examine the great and magnificent profundity that the words of the Bible carry, I mean, the Bible tells us everything about life and everything that we need to know about the world and about our origin and about the, the future destiny of the world, how the world will end in very short order. The Bible tells us all these things, tells us profound things. That no man could ever tell us. Only God could tell us those things. Amen? And, and that in and of itself is a testimony to the veracity of Scripture, to its truthfulness, and to its divine origin. Amen? And so, of course, this is what we Christians know. Not only have we believed it, but we know it to be true. Why? Because we have the inner witness of the Spirit of God. And, and we not, not only do we know and believe these things, we're committed to them even unto death. Amen? We would give up our life before we give up our faith in the Word of God. Amen? And uh, many have. <laughs> many have. You know, some of the first Reformers and the guys that were really breaking up the hard ground after the end of the Dark Ages were guys like John Wycliffe and, and William Tyndale. You know what their mission was? Translate the Bible into the language of the common people so that people could read the Word of God for themselves. Because the church, the so-called church, had kept the Word of God in darkness for some 1,000 years. That's why we call it the Dark Ages. The Bible was kept in Latin, and the common people couldn't even speak Latin, much less uh, read it. Amen? And uh, so this is what these early reformers were doing. They were translating the Bible into the common language. And you know what happened? They were giving their life for it. They were burned at the stake. Get this. The so-called church, 
burned these men of God at the stake for translating the Bible into the language of the common people. Now tell me whose work that was. You with me? You understand? <clears throat> okay, so uh, that brings us... Uh, okay, so that was chapter 2, verse 13. They received the word of God for what it was in truth, the word of God, not as the word of men, but as the word of God, Paul says, right? And then he kind of makes another shifting gears again and begins to talk about how they also, the Thessalonians, had become imitators of the churches that were in Judea in the way that they were suffering because of the word of God. And he describes how the Jewish persecution that took place in um, Judea, they were undergoing by their own countrymen in Thessalonica, right? And of course, this prompts him to make the statements that he makes in verse 15 and 16 about the Jews. And so it is with that that we kind of opened up the scripture a little bit and talked about uh, who the Jews were, uh, what the Jews were doing then, what the Jews are doing now, and what God's plan is for the Jews in the future. Okay? With that, we come to verse 17 and 18. And there Paul shifts again, and he says this, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Paul again acknowledges his great love for the Thessalonians and his longing to see them, stating, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, from this we know it had not been too long since Paul was run out of Thessalonica. But he speaks as if to say that his heart was ever with them, saying, in person, not in spirit, we are all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Now understand, you know, here Paul says that we were taken away from you for a short while. Okay? Now this is how we know how quickly these, this time frame actually passed from the time that Paul was in Thessalonica, established the church, was run out of town, and this next uh, uh, series of verses is going to give us the historical narrative about the apostles wanting to go to Thessalonica, not being able to. So uh, um, they, they chose Timothy to go by himself. And so Timothy goes, makes a visit there, and comes back with a very encouraging report about how they had fared in the faith. And how God had kept them in the midst of much affliction. And then they, uh, Timothy successfully returns back with this report. And um, that, if you will, is what prompted Paul's writing of this letter, 1 Thessalonians. Okay? So after he had come back, Timothy had come back and given him this report, Paul pens the letter and then sends it to the church. So, but we know here, he says, by the, by the time Paul is writing the letter, okay, so between the time that Paul was run out of Thessalonica and the time that Timothy had gotten back with the report and Paul is now penning the letter, the Bible says here it was a short while, okay? Now, we don't know what a short while is, but we're assuming it was a short while. Short while. Hey, that's good. <clears throat> 
But he speaks uh, as if to say that his heart was ever with him. He says, look, we weren't with you, not in person. I'm sorry. In person, not in spirit. We've been taken away from you in person, not in spirit. Paul is saying, look, we're with you, man. We're just not there with you. Amen? And uh, here, Paul's great desire was to be united with them once again. He says, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. He's telling them, we want to see you. We want to come back. We want to encourage you in the faith. We're longing to be with you. He wanted to see them once again, and he had obviously tried to come, saying, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Now, Paul says here that, that uh, first he says, we wanted to come to you. Who's he talking about? Him and Timothy and Silas, okay? We wanted to come to you, right? Now look what he says. I, Paul, more than once. Now what do we learn from this statement? He is, he is. Greater than this, Paul is the author of 1 Thessalonians. Okay, you with me? Here is a, a personal statement that Paul is making as he's penning this letter. I, Paul, I'm the guy that's writing this thing. You with me? Of course, you understand, and, and because the Bible is always and continually under attack, they're always seeking to discredit the author of certain books. or this, You know, they're trying to look for things in the Bible where it just doesn't add up, you know? They're looking for contradictions, and they're looking for things by which they can discredit the Word of God because they don't like what it says, right? So this kind of a thing has been going on for hundreds of years where people are trying to say, well, you know, Paul didn't write that book, and Paul didn't write that book, and Timothy really didn't go to Thessalonica, you know, because this and that. And they've got all these fancy reasons why the Bible isn't the Word of God, right? (laughs) Here we learn that Paul is the author of 1 Thessalonians. Because he's telling the Thessalonians, I, Paul, wanted to come and see your face. We know that the guy that was penning this letter was the Apostle Paul. And he says here, and yet Satan hindered us. Very interesting thought. Mm -hmm. However, he had tried to come and visit. He was unsuccessful, and he wanted them to know that he had tried. This is what prompted his sending of Timothy back to see the fledgling church a visit which he goes on to record in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 10. Nevertheless, he tells them of his great desire and longing to see them again, of which he mentions again in chapter 3, there in verse 10, 11, he says, And as we night and day kept praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith, now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Paul is telling them, we longed to see you. We wanted to come and see you. We've been praying day and night that God would allow us to come and see you. But what? Satan hindered us. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? We know that we our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against what? Spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, right? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. And we understand that when the gospel is hindered, when the sanctification of the church is hindered, when the uh, warfare that we fight as Christians is hindered, 
Who is the author of that hindering? Satan. Satan. Nevertheless, he is but a servant on a leash being held by who? God. God. We know that God has created Satan for this very purpose. Has he not? So that through the great struggle of spiritual warfare in the world and in, the li- in our life, right? God may be glorified that we might see clearly the difference between what is clean and unclean, what is righteous and holy, and what is wicked and, and, and uh, unholy, right? This, this uh, wicked Satan, this fallen angel, exists for the purpose of God. Nevertheless, he's a real enemy, is he not? And at times he creates much havoc. Surely, in the general sense, God would not want Paul run out of town. He would want Paul to be able to stay. Morally speaking, God's commanded will. He would want Paul to stay for many, many months and establish the church and complete what is lacking in their faith and build them up in their most holy faith so that they could have everything they needed to stand and to glorify God. Right? Nevertheless, God had decreed that Paul should be run out of town in three short weeks. And that by an angry mob of Jews. Amen? So, now why in the world would God do a thing like that? Well, let me suggest one reason. Okay? So that the glory of his keeping power for little baby Christian saints could be seen as they stand firm in the faith under much persecution without the help of any outside ministers having a brand new faith that's only three weeks old not only did they stand firm in the face of persecution but they went out and preached the gospel in all Macedonia and Achaia and in every place the Bible says now that's a testimony to who and to what to God and His power. Amen? And so we look at that and we can't credit any man. We can't credit any man for the way that the Thessalonians' faith blossomed and grew and was a profound, uh, uh, amazing thing in such a short period of time. Amen? Paul even acknowledges this in chapter 3. He says, how can we thank God enough? He says, I think it's verse 9. He says, uh, hold up, let, me, let me just tell you for sure which verse it is. Verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? Right? He's thanking God that they stood firm. Amen? He's glorifying God. And guess what? So are we. Here we are some 2,000 years later looking back and saying, look at this great thing that God did in this little church. Amen? <clears throat> well, he goes on and he says in verse 19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. Now here Paul is talking specifically about the Thessalonian believers themselves. And he's saying, 
Who is our hope or joy or crown of exhortation? Is it not even you, Thessalonians, you Christians, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at our coming? Now, he's saying, who's our hope, our joy, or crown in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? You understand? He's looking forward to that time when what? When Christ returns again. All right? Notice the word coming here in verse 19. That's the word parousia. Okay? It ref- in this context, is referring specifically to the bodily return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? He says, Who is our hope or our joy or our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? Here Paul expresses the reasons for his great love for the Thessalonians. They are the fruits of his gospel labor. They reflect his success in service to God and are evidence of his great reward before God for his service. In this sense, they are his hope or his joy or his crown of exaltation so as to present to Jesus a gift of Paul's labor. So he states, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Consider what a joy it must have brought the apostle to have the whole to have whole communities of believers that were the fruits of his hard work and sacrifice. Think about that. And surely when he had a group of faithful and excited believers, he was thrilled at the thought of it. But here the idea is that look, when the Lord Jesus returns in all of his glory to judge the living and the dead, and Paul stands before him, What is going to be the crowning thing that the Lord himself puts upon the head of Paul? Paul says it will be those Christian believers in Thessalonica. They are my glory. They are my joy. They are the thing that I exult in, he says, in the presence of our Lord at his coming. They are like a crown to rest upon my head. You get the picture? an important thing to consider. I wonder if we think about our own life in this sense. That when the Lord comes, we're going to stand before Him. And every man is going to be judged according to the deeds done in the body. Every man and woman, let me qualify that. Are you with me? I wonder, in that day, what will be your crown? What will be your joy? What will be the thing that you exalt in? Before the Lord at his coming. Interesting thought to think of. Amen. But I hope you have it fixed firmly in your mind. What it is that you pursue. And what it is that you give your life for. After all, he is the Lord. Amen. He is the master and you are the servant. Amen. Who is it that you're serving? Is it God? Or is it money? Is it God or is it your own comfort? Is it God or are you a God unto yourself whom you serve? Interesting thought to consider. In all of the service that you render, who do you render it to? I tell you in that day, you shall be rewarded for God for the service by which you have rendered unto Him. Amen? On one hand, I think that should scare the living daylights out of us. 
On the other, I think it's something we ought to be very confident about. And if you can't be very confident about the way you serve God, you need to change the things you do. Are you with me? And it's not hard to figure out. It's real simple. The things that the Lord requires of us. That's why we read the Bible day in and day out. Seeking the Lord in his kingdom and his righteousness. So that we're not ignorant of how to serve the Lord. But we understand what the will of the Lord is. Amen? Okay. Well, Paul here is expressing his great love for these Thessalonians. He says that they are his joy. (laughs) They themselves are his joy. He writes in chapter 3, verse 6 and following, But now that Timothy has come to us from you, he has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. And, and here Paul was saying, not only did Timothy come and tell us that you guys are standing firm in the faith and in love toward all the brothers, but guess what? You even long to see us. Paul said by that very thought he was comforted that the Thessalonians thought fondly of him. And, and uh, uh, this was a, a matter of great rejoicing for Paul. He goes on, chapter 3, verse 1 and following. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. He says here in verse 1, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best uh, to be left behind at Athens alone. Now, whenever you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself the question. What question? (laughs) Praise God. I'm glad you look so critically at the Bible. I'm glad you look at it to understand what it means. And you think about what it's... you got to think. You want to understand the Bible? you got to think. Amen? You can't just mindlessly kind of blob your way through the Scripture hoping that somehow by osmosis you're going to... It's, you understand? It's a cognitive effort. Right. There, there you go, as Jeff aptly put it. Love God with your mind. How do you do that? You think about what the therefore is there for. Amen? You think about what the words are communicating because in them there's, there is the understanding of truth and that truth is bread for your soul. Amen? It's encouragement for your faith. It's like manna from God for today so that you can be nourished in the faith. Amen? You with me? So you've got to think about it. You've got to think about what the therefore is there for. So then, Paul's statement, the therefore is referring back to chapter uh, back to chapter 1 verse 18 where he says for we wanted to come to you I Paul more than once but Satan hindered us therefore he says when I could endure it no longer right I wanted to come to you I wanted to come see you I wanted to encourage you in your faith but I was hindered 
he says, wanting to eagerly, uh, wanting eagerly to return to Thessalonica and strengthen their faith, Paul, uh, of such opposition, Paul had come to understand that he could not actually go back anytime soon. So he states, therefore, when I could endure it no longer, endure what? Endure, endure the longing to go and see them. He was actually tormented by this idea. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. He thought it best instead to send on Timothy. And so we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. See here the record of Timothy's visit back to Thessalonica and the encouraging news he brought back, which is reported in the following verses. Now here, Paul says... In very plain language, I sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see you because I couldn't make it. I couldn't get there. So I sent Timothy. Okay? Listen, it's a historical fact that Timothy went to Thessalonica from Athens and then returned. How do we know that? Because it's recorded right here in the Bible. Amen? Amen? That's rather simple, isn't it? You'd think guys with a Harvard Law degree could believe that. I'm sorry. I don't mean to mock everybody that has a Harvard Law degree. I really don't. But I do mean I, I, I do mean to shine a light on the darkness of liberal theology. <clears throat> he says, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Here he's referring to the purpose for which Timothy was sent, right? Paul's intentions in wanting to return to the newly formed church was to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, right? He repeats that again in verse 10. In verse 10 he says... Um, and as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. He wants to get back over there. He only spent three weeks with them. Man, these are babies in the faith as far as Paul is concerned. Amen? He wants to get back there and he wants to complete what's lacking in their faith. He wants to strengthen and encourage them. This is the reason he sent Timothy. To strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. This was always his goal with all the churches as he worked tirelessly to see them grow and flourish in the faith. To this Paul labored and strived. Listen, Paul labored and he strived to see these churches grow and be encouraged in their faith through preaching and teaching and through discipleship, through being there in their lives and encouraging them both one-on-one -on -one from house to house and publicly in the temple and in the public meeting places. In Colossians 1.28, he writes of this. He says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And here Paul speaks of how what his ministry looked like in a sense. He was admonishing and teaching everyone for this purpose to present everyone complete in Christ. The word man in this verse is what we call gender neutral. It's referring to mankind as a whole. 
Are you with me? And so he, he, he labors and he strives, admonishing and teaching with all wisdom so that everyone might be presented complete in Christ. He says, to this I labor and I strive according to all of God's power, which mightily works within me. Here you kind of get a window into Paul's ministry and, 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 and the zeal that he had in his heart to uh, admonish and teach with wisdom. You know, this is what we need. We need wisdom. We need to walk in God's wisdom. We need wisdom is, is, is that thing which we possess and understand the truth. Amen? We understand with wisdom, listen, we fear the Lord properly. Amen? And that's the basis on which we look at our life and we judge our surroundings and we judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We do that with God's wisdom. Amen? Not with the wisdom of the world, but with the wisdom that comes from God and from his word. Amen? Okay, Paul was greatly concerned about them being so strongly opposed and suffering persecution. Listen, he, he, he was concerned because they were in the fire. You know, he went through there. He established this little church. In four short weeks, he's out of town. They run him out. And he left behind this little fledgling church in this very hostile environment. Paul gets away. He starts praying, man. He's greatly concerned for them. He's greatly concerned for their faith. He's longing to go back and see them. He's wondering, how are they going to fare? How are they going to stand? I'm not there to shepherd them. I can't be there with my big old stick and run off them wolves. You understand? His heart is being tormented that he can't be there with them. And not only with them, but think of all the little communities of believers he's, he's left behind on this road to Athens. Right? He'd just come out of Philippi where there were people being saved left and right. They ran him out of town. Right? After God turned the jail upside down. Right? And then he came through several other little communities on his way to Thessalonica, preaching the gospel in every one. God saving people everywhere he went. Right? He looks back on all that. He's thinking, God, what are you doing here? <laughs> you ever ask that question? God, what are you doing here? Well, that's sure not the way I would do it, God. Yeah, you've been there, haven't you? <clears throat> he was greatly concerned about them because... They were being so strongly opposed and suffering persecution. Therefore, he longed to return and encourage them and strengthen them against these satanic attacks. And he states his motives in wanting to encourage them so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Through strengthening and encouragement, he had hoped to keep them from being unduly discouraged and overly troubled by the common destiny of Christians to be persecuted. You understand? He wanted to strengthen them and encourage them and tell them, Look, this is what I told you before. If you want to be a Christian and you're going to follow Christ, you're probably going to be persecuted. For this very thing we were destined. You with me? Of course, that's hard for American Christians. Because we live in a culture where we have so-called freedom of religion, right? 
Well, as the days have gone on, the culture is becoming increasingly more hostile to our form of religion now, haven't they? And the more vocal we are about the truth of the gospel, the more hostile they are about it. Amen? And of course, when we tell them the gospel as it really is, it certainly engenders much affliction. Would you agree? Or we can water down the message and we won't offend anybody. Right? We can tell them warm, fuzzy things. You know, warm, fuzzy things, they don't offend at all. They feel real nice and soft and smooth and comfortable. Right? But family, those aren't the kind of things that they ran Paul out of Thessalonica for. Amen? Yeah, those aren't the kind of things that get people saved either, says Greg. Amen? Think about it. Those aren't the kind of things they hung Jesus on the cross for. Jesus wasn't telling them warm, fuzzy things. They'd have patted him on the back for that. You with me? The gospel that Jesus preached got him hung on a tree. The gospel that Peter preached got him hung on a tree upside down gospel that Paul preached got him run out of Thessalonica by a mob of angry Jews and got him beaten half to death more times than he could count on both hands and feet. So what's the gospel we preach? Hopefully, hopefully, I haven't been beat up for my faith yet. Causes me to wonder Am I really preaching the biblical gospel? I hope so. I'm seeking to do it more and more, especially as I learn more and more how to articulate it better and better. And with it comes a cost. A cost which I'm soon, I'm sure soon, we're all going to be more and more aware Let me tell you, this culture is hostile to the gospel, and increasingly so as the days go by. Again, Paul calls them to account of their own knowledge. He says, for you yourselves know that, in fact, Christians inevitably endure persecution for their faith because, he says, we have been destined for this. That is what he says in verse 3. This was a fact he had obviously taught them in the few short weeks he spent teaching them, as verse 4 makes clear. See here the apostles' pastoral heart, having a great struggle longing to be with them and being concerned for their well-being, and yet being hindered and unable to return. There was a great struggle in Paul's heart. He wanted to be there. He wanted to encourage them, but he couldn't. And so here in these verses he's expressing his heart. He goes on, verse 4, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Remember how he keeps saying, as you know? And he keeps calling them to account of their own personal remembrance of these things? Because obviously there were people trying to stir up their faith and try to tell them that the things Paul was telling them weren't true, right? Well, he keeps trying to refer them back to what they know to be true. They were there. Paul was with them. He told them these things. He says, I told you that we were going to suffer affliction, as you know. Verse 5, 
For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Here in verse 4, he says, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. Here Paul calls them to remember the things he taught them, saying, Indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance. And so by to encourage them to stand firm in the midst of their great trial. You know, the very thing Paul was telling them came to pass. He was saying, you know what? You, you, you uh, join yourselves to us and we're going to suffer affliction. You join yourselves to us and it's not going to be an easy road. He says, we kept telling you in advance. And in bringing them to the remembrance of these things he was telling them, he's trying to get them to think about, oh, now we, now we get it. Now we understand. You see, they were a bit miffed at the fact that they were suffering so much. And as we're going to see in 2 Thessalonians, they were overly concerned. They, they thought that they were enduring so much suffering that the tribulation had come. And, and, and they, they, in 2 Thessalonians, they're thinking, man, we, we missed it. We, we, we missed it. We've been, we, we've been left behind from after God's uh, wrath has begun on the earth. And Paul has the right to tell them, no, 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 time out. That hasn't happened yet. The things that you're suffering, listen, are only, he says in chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians, verse 7, uh, these things are only proof of God's righteous judgment. That these who are afflicting you are those who do not obey God and, and do not believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He's trying to tell them, look, you're suffering. I understand your suffering is severe. But that's the kind of thing that happens to Christians many times. That's what he's telling them. He says, we kept telling you this in advance. Of this important teaching, our Lord and the apostles often tell us. Now, Christians, you guys are Christians. And I want to do what Paul did when he was in Thessalonica. I want to tell you something, and I want you to listen to the words of Jesus. Okay? When you become a Christian, you sign up to suffer. Because when you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, you became a Christian because you received the Holy Spirit of God. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, what will happen? You shall be my witnesses. Right? He says, Acts 1.8, When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And I want you to go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them to obey all the things I have commanded you. When you sign up to be a Christian, that's what you're signing up for. You're signing up to be a royal priest, a mediator between God and men, a gospel minister. You're signing up to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. The, the things that he taught the twelve to do, he's teaching you to do. That's what you're signing up to do, to be followers of the Lord and do the things he taught us. Are you with me? And when you sign up for that, family, what comes with that is this. You are going to suffer persecution. Now, I'm sure if, if you have been vocal about your faith at all, 
you have suffered some persecution at some level or degree. Right? Now, it may be a little bit of persecution, or it may be some more than others. In fact, some of you might have suffered rather severely. I mean, I don't know what kind of persecution you've suffered. You may have wound up divorced because your spouse couldn't handle your faith. I don't know. You might have wound up uh, uh, being disregarded at work. You might have faced many different kinds of trials and suffering that come with being a Christian who's excited about their faith. Usually people don't want to hear it because they're utterly convicted by their sin. It's another reason why they don't want to believe the Bible is the Word of God. Because if it is, guess what? They're in big trouble. Right? I don't know what kind of persecution you may have endured, Joe. Yes, he does. God does love us and God does have a plan for our lives. And family, look, for some of us, that may mean being a brand new baby Christian in the midst of a Muslim culture. Or it might mean being an American evangelical Christian where you can literally go out and stand on the street corner on a soapbox and preach the gospel. Do that in a Muslim country, you'll lose your head. Right? You may lose your head if you do it here. But nevertheless, right, when we sign up to be a Christian, we sign up for persecution. Why? Well, let's read what Jesus has to say in John 15, verse 18 and following. He says, if the world hates you, if. He's not necessarily saying you're going to be in the midst of the worst kind of suffering and persecution there is, but you might. You with me? If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Now that's the teaching from the Lord himself about those who follow him. Amen? You with me? It's very clear. Second Timothy 3.12 says, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You understand? Because the, God, the godly are preachers of righteousness. And in order to preach right standing with God you got to get the bad news first. Because <laughs> in order to have right standing with God, you must do what? Repent. repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And in order to repent, you must know that you're doing what? Sinning against the holy God who's going to bring you to judgment and to wrath. Unless, of course, you escape by means of the only way that God has provided even the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Amen? And so, if you're a godly person, and you are a witness of Christ, let me tell you, you're going to be persecuted at some level or degree. Why? Because the world hates Jesus. 
the world hates, know that it hated me first. Therefore, uh, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Amen? Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How about Peter? He writes and he says, of course, Peter's writing to Christians who are under severe persecution. Right? A little bit later on, after Thessalonians, right? When we've got a Roman emperor who's the kind of emperor that burns Christians at his garden parties. Right? These are the ones Peter's writing to. This is what he says, chapter 4, verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Listen, if you suffer as a Christian, that is commendable. Jesus says, rejoice in that day. For so they treated the prophets who went before you. Amen? Peter tells us how you get through that deal. (laughs) He says, if you suffer like that, let him entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. If you have to suffer according to the will of God, let me tell you, you're going to need some strength. And that strength comes from God. And God will give you what's necessary in that day. Amen? He'll give you grace to stand. Right? The Spirit of God will never lead you into a place where the Spirit of God will not keep you. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Amen. The Lord, listen, the Lord has nothing but good designs for our life, family. It doesn't mean that everything that happens to you in life is going to be good. Good night. If you follow Jesus perfectly, you're going to wind up on a cross. And let me tell you, at the moment, that's not going to seem very good. But on the day that you stand before the Lord, let me tell you, the glory that you receive from God for that sacrifice will resound in the halls of heaven, world without end, forever and ever and ever. They will be a testimony to your commitment to Christ. And everybody in heaven will glorify God and rejoice with you over it forever and ever and ever. And it will be seen in that day to be a righteous act. Are you with me? Family, this life here is just a little light and momentary affliction. It's momentary. This is what? 80 years, 90 if you're, if you're, uh, if uh, God's providence so sees fit. What is that? It's one little dot on the blip of eternity. Are you with me? It's a light and momentary affliction. Commit yourself. Commit your way to the Lord. Carry out the commandments of God. Carry out your priesthood. Do the things he's called you to do. Be a committed Christian who serves God with all of his heart and his mind and his soul and his strength. Let me tell you, 
His reward is with him, and he's coming very soon. Those aren't my words. Those are his words. Learn from the parables, how he's teaching us. You can be a foolish, wicked slave and not serve, right? Or you can be a righteous, hardworking slave that is rewarded immensely on the day of judgment. Are you with me? And again, those aren't my parables. <laughs> those are Christ's parables. Read them. Read the parable in, in Matthew uh, 24, at the end of Matthew 24, about what we ought to be doing when the Lord returns and how we ought to be ready. It's eye-opening stuff. I guess we better stop right there. Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we honor you and we bless you. We thank you for this rich, rich section of Scripture. Oh Lord, here we are confronted with the reality that Christians are destined to suffer persecution. And, um, oh Lord, you have destined us for this. I pray for each one of us that you would understand how this cause us to understand how this applies to our life. To us personally. God, I pray that you would cause us to think deeply about the things we do to serve you in your kingdom and to follow you as a Christian. And I, I pray that those things are the very things you taught us to do. And God, not that it's all service and disciple making, but, but Lord, just becoming like you and walking in love and walking in joy and kindness. God, help us to see our life as just ministered of your love and your grace to all who are around us, which also includes speaking the truth in love. And so, God, help us as we desire to speak the gospel. Give us boldness and give us grace, God, that we do it in a way that glorifies you. And, Lord, I just pray that as we're sharing the gospel, people will come to faith. I pray, God, that you would cause us to see that the gospel is powerful and that people get saved when we preach the gospel. I pray, Father, that you would uh, uh, just uh, cause our efforts to be fruitful and effective. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the great privilege that we have to be called your sons, to be called your servants, to be called a holy nation of priests unto God. We thank you for this privilege. Help us to understand what it means. And Lord, help us not to be forgetful hearers, but effectual doers. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.